You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Beaulieu. Justin Bean, a leading sustainability strategist, is the very definition of an optimist. He sees rays of hope where others see doom and gloom. In a world chock full of negativity, crises, and uncertainties, he envisions a sustainable, abundant, and equitable future with enormous business opportunities. Justin's penchant for seeing the sunny side of life is captured in his book, What Could Go Right? Designing Our Ideal Future to Emerge from Continual Crises into a Thriving World. In fact, he argues that society at large is actually in better shape than ever before in human history. So, rather than focus on what could go wrong, he asserts, people should envision an ideal future where they work peacefully together to meet humanity's needs despite the many coming disruptions. An impact-focused tech executive, Justin has worked with Fortune 500s, startups, and nonprofit organizations. And he joins me to discuss key aspects of his book, including how business can drive exponential purposeful change. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Ken. So Justin, you call yourself a pragmatic optimist. How have you been able to maintain that positive attitude when the news more often than not is bad? Yeah, I, I think first it's it's good to address, I have an issue with the word optimism, right, <laughs> in, in this context. And so it's not about being a Pollyanna optimist and just, you know, positive thinking and the world will get better. It's more a question of, how are we going to improve the world and build it into something that we really want it to be? And the way to do that is not to just say, here's what's wrong and here's what's you know going poorly. That's a good step in the process. And we need to be able to acknowledge and to understand the problems that we're trying to solve. But at the end of the day, I feel like in a lot of the public conversations, there's a gap. And that gap in the way I see it is envisioning what that better alternative is and what the better alternative future is. And so without that, if we simply get rid of what we don't want, we often end up having the same thing rise up in its place. So we need to have an answer to, well, what would you do differently? What would make it better? And what are you going to do to be a part of that solution? So I am you know, pessimistic about some things, I'm optimistic about others, but I think the right way to build a better future is to envision what that better future looks like, figure out the steps to get there and get busy building it. So that's what I mean by pragmatic optimism. To that end, Justin, so what's your message then to brand leaders about viewing setbacks as opportunities? So in setbacks or in times of crises, when we look back in history, we find a lot of patterns and the patterns that we find in terms of human behavioral response and organizational response is often to actually respond really effectively. So, uh, you know, the Brookings Institution did a really interesting study where they looked at the uh, adaptations that organizations and people made in response to crises. Mm -hmm. And they found that problem solving and innovation increased and happened more rapidly. They found that there was an increased resiliency built for the next event. So we prepared for next time better. So we were more resilient and able to more able to respond and get through that next crisis. And levels of cooperation actually increased. This is kind of the classic 
Reagan, what if an alien species attacked Earth? All of a sudden, you know, communism, capitalism wouldn't matter. We would all be humanity trying to survive and, and win. And I think that is true with climate change, is true with these other sort of global issues that we're facing, that these crises can really bring us together, especially when we focus on solutions. Now, kind of nodding back to our initial question, when we just focus on whose fault is it, who's wrong, who should you hate, right? Oh, it's got to be DeSantis, or it's got to be Hillary Clinton, or blah, 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 who, whichever side you're on, that's not very productive, right? If instead we say, okay, so what do we prefer? What What should we do? then we can come together and, and build that better future. Because I believe from talking to people around the country and around the world that we all basically want the same things. Yes, we have some different beliefs. And yes, we have different perceptions of the way the world works. But a lot of that is driven by the media that we're given and the news stories that we ingest and the sort of tribal narratives that are present. Mm -hmm. And if we can get beyond those and, and more towards that ideal future that we uh, share and a need and a want for, we can undo a lot of that divisiveness and move forward. So that was a big, big part of it. And then uh, the Brookings Institution also found that systemic change was possible, right? It goes back to this classic concept of there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. So when crises occur, we respond quickly and we respond big, especially America, right? The U.S. is, for better or worse, sometimes a reactive country. Um, but when we react, we react big. And so you can see that in some of the IRA funding and some of the work that the government is doing to provide really sizable funding for the transition that we that we see. So in addition to systemic change, that also means dramatic policy shifts. We're able to change the way that we do business and government and that people rise to the challenge. New talent emerges and people who wouldn't have otherwise gotten into sustainability or government or business rise up and say, I'm inspired about this challenge. And we get the, the best brains and minds and hands on deck to help us to, to build that better future. So a lot of good things come out of this. So what does this mean for business? <laughs> to take it back to your question to brand leaders, it's to not only acknowledge the challenges that we face, but it's to help inspire people to do something about it, give them a pathway to do something about it, and build a business that's going to be financially, operationally sustainable and environmentally sustainable to get there. And I think that's one of the biggest opportunities that we have this century is really rebuilding the entire economy to be one that is sustainable and more equitable. And the businesses that are able to figure out their path into that future are the ones that are going to thrive like nobody's business, right? Mm -hmm. we, we saw with the digital revolution, Facebook and Uber and all of these digital businesses that understood the wave that had come, they went from zero to millions of users and billions of dollars in valuation, essentially overnight compared to a you know, GM or an IBM or some of the more classic Fortune 500s. And then we also saw the dying out of Fortune 500s like for large companies like Blockbuster, like Kodak, that had all of the right in the world to build that digital future, right? I mean, Kodak should have created Instagram and Blockbuster should have created YouTube, but they didn't. It just wasn't in the culture. It wasn't in the leadership's minds and they were doing well. So they didn't really see it as a threat, but they were overtaken really quickly by competitors. I think what's happening today is pretty similar. Instead of a digital transformation, it's a sustainability transformation. 
And so everything from the materials that we use, the food that we eat, the transportation that we take, the energy that powers our cities, and a number of other things are all transforming into sustainable alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so as a business executive, as a brand leader, be thinking about those things and how you can lead your company, your customers, your uh, employees, and your ecosystem in that direction. Is it safe to assume, Justin, that legacy companies are a little more pessimistic than, say, startups and obviously nonprofit organizations? I don't know if I'd say pessimistic, but I would say risk averse. Mm-hmm. And there's some irony there because there is there's a big risk that comes with the long term, right? There's an existential risk over the long term, but there is a business risk over the short and medium term. And these larger companies are often very risk averse in the near term and kind of less risk averse over long periods of time. But startups basically have to build the future and build something big and amazing or die. And so I think they have to be optimistic and they have to uh, really envision that positive future and, and get busy building it. Otherwise, they lose, they don't get traction, they lose momentum, and they they fall away, right? Especially in an environment like we're seeing today where venture capital has dried up for many startups, not climate tech, right? Climate tech is still booming. And even though venture capital investments were down, uh, I think it was 35% in 2022, uh, climate tech investments were only down 3%. And, and that was after a record year in 2021. So across the board, we're seeing more and more of that investment and more and more of that momentum going into sustainable companies or companies that are creating solutions for the sustainable future. To that end, Justin, so for companies that want to make a difference for both people and the planet, talk about the importance of placing purpose at the center of a business strategy. It's very important. <laughs> mm-hmm. And okay, so I'll talk about it again in terms of, of risks, challenges, and then also the opportunities. So on the risks slash challenge side of that, if you don't have a, a strong purpose and you don't have an inspiring mission, it's going to be harder for you to recruit people. It's going to be you know more difficult for you to get into new markets. And if you're doing things that are environmentally unsustainable, right, and you're doing things that are unethical, it is easier than ever for a company to get canceled overnight. The transparency that we have into company operations, into what the government's doing, into what happens around the world is higher than ever. When we look on social media or we go to chat GPT or Google, we can find out what's happening across the world and in many places. And it's easier to share than ever. So we've seen this with plenty of brands where something is discovered, even if, you know, 90% of the company is doing something positive, even if you've got, you know, a small percentage that have done something unethical or destroying some ecosystem, that can collapse your brand value overnight. And you can have surges of uh, attacks coming from social media. And, you know, that opens you up to a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. And even if you're, fa- if you're found to be greenwashing, that's huge risk, right? So any company that's greenwashing today, I think is, you know, to be crass, stupid, (laughs) because it's just a terrible business risk. Even if you don't care about the planet that you live on, if you don't care about people, if you're a sociopath, you should still not greenwash because it's bad for your company. And so, you know, another trend that we're seeing is what's called green hushing because of this. And so a lot of companies that are making a lot of great progress are actually not talking about it and they're not sharing it because they don't want to be accused of greenwashing. 
And that protects them from the risk somewhat. And, you know, they're still able to make progress, which is great. But on the other side of that, they're not able to share that progress with the rest of us and how they did it. So we're not able to get the best practices. And so I think there's some kind of balance, right, where we have to know that this is going to take time. And companies that are working on it, it's complicated. It's really hard, Mm -hmm. right? This isn't an easy flip a switch and create your sustainable kumbaya. It is very difficult business and it's a new market. It's nobody knows what's coming down the road, especially with artificial intelligence and everything else. All we know is that things are changing rapidly. So it's a difficult environment. The best way to go is sustainable, ethical. Don't mess with it and don't get yourself in trouble. The positive side of it is that, you know, studies have shown there's a great study by DCG and the World Economic Forum that looked at companies that integrated sustainability and purpose and impact into their core business. And these companies had, you know, 12% higher margins, 19% higher valuations on average. They faced lower regulatory risks and the cost of capital went down. Their ability to recruit new workers and keep and retain workers was high. And the I think one of the most exciting parts of it for startups and bigger companies is that they're able to enter markets that are growing much more rapidly than the conventional markets. So, you know, some of these alter- sustainable alternative products, solutions, services, markets are growing 20% faster than conventional markets. And granted, some of them are smaller, but with that kind of growth, that's going to be the dominant market in the future. So, you know, there's, there's a world of hurt for companies that totally avoid this and dismiss it. And there's a world of opportunity for companies that are able to find their path and find their way of integrating this into their core business. And every company is different. So it's a different answer for everybody. Well, it's one thing, Justin, to envision an ideal future. It's another to set your business up for success. So can you just provide, you know, some steps that companies need to consider as they move forward along along this path? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's it's tradi- this in this form, it's traditional business, right? You're you're a hundred percent correct. You can't just say, "All right, we're a sustainable business now," and then cash will f- you know fall from the skies. Very traditional business analysis of the markets you enter. You know, is a blue ocean or red ocean? How does this relate to our core business, and can it increase value and routes to market for the rest of the portfolio? You know, there's all these different considerations to put in place. Some of the tools, I think, are are things like design thinking, right, where there are sort of three steps in designing something new, whether it's a business or a product. And the first step is figuring out desirability. Do people want it? What is the most desirable thing that you could offer? And that needs no limitations, right? If you want to say, yeah, uh, anti-gravity technology and, you know, Star Trek transporters, great. Right. Throw that out there. What would solve the problem with no constraints whatsoever? And, you know, gold stars to people who come up with the most absurd answers. Right. We can't punish people for great ideas because it might actually lead somewhere and it might help us question our assumptions about what we can do. But we can't start there. That's just Pollyanna optimism. Right. Second one is feasibility. So desirability first. What do people want? Second, feasibility. Can it technically be done? Is there a way that technology can actually solve the problem or you know, we as a team with our expertise can solve the problem? Is it actually doable? And then the third step is that viability. Can a business be built around it that's profitable and, and moves forward? You know, There are plenty of frameworks and a lot of interesting ways to do it. But I, I think a key takeaway is that you, know, you can't succeed by simply offering something sustainable. 
it still needs to be a superior alternative from a product standpoint or an offering standpoint. If we look at electric cars, for example, right? There were a lot of electric cars before Tesla, but they were, you know, the size of a golf cart or they, you know, weren't fun to drive. They're kind of embarrassing. And, you know, it didn't appeal to especially the American audience that wanted, you know, muscle cars and, you know, sexy, sporty vehicles and things like that. And then you saw Tesla come out with an electric vehicle that was faster, better acceleration, great handling, and a really cool technology user experience when you're actually in the car. And so even, again, if you don't care about the environment, you might switch over to that because it's a great experience, right? And it's a fun car to drive, you know, and that was enabled by the fact that it was electric. Uh, and so I think if if you can find ways of you know, leveraging the strengths of the sustainable alternative, whether that means it's cheaper, it gives a better experience, it comes faster to you or, you know, whatever it is, whatever that extra benefit is, you know, think about that leverage that you can gain from the sustainable alternative and make it a customer benefit and, you know, put that on top of the sustainability. So it's, it's, it's going to be tough, I think, in the longer term to just win by saying this is the green alternative. I think that works in the short term for some markets and some segments, but it's not the big impact that we're looking for that helps the world advance and transition. Hello, Beyond Profit listener. Global sustainability is a priority issue for the ANA, whether it's mental health and well-being, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or protecting our environment. The ANA Society and Sustainability Collective provides content, frameworks, and resources to help you adopt and accelerate sustainable practices. Get the inspiration and learning you need by visiting ana.net slash beyondcollective. That's ana.net slash beyondcollective. And now, back to the show. I'm speaking today with Justin Bean, author of What Could Go Right? Justin, please talk about the important impact that the younger generations will have on any important business transformation. Yeah, it's funny seeing some of these narratives that come out in the news around, you know, millennials and Gen Z and, you know, they're they're so lazy and they don't want to do anything, right? Whenever I talk to Gen Z, and granted, I'm in a little bit of a bubble because I see a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, Silicon Valley and, you know, younger people, not just in the Bay Area, but, you know, across the country, right, that are starting new projects and starting new startups. You know, if we think about the internet coming in, and how we had to help our grandparents, you know, set the router up or get on the internet, teach them about email and all this other stuff. I think with artificial intelligence and all the apps and all the tools available, that it's going to be 10 times the transition that, that the internet was. And that means that digital natives, as we might call them, or even AI natives will be vastly more prepared for the future world. So I think Having those savvy people in the room, at least for the conversation, to help organizations understand what's actually going on out there, how to leverage it, is going to be really, really helpful. They not only understand, you know, how to use AI and what it might mean, and you know, what is what is crypto, right? What is blockchain? All this other stuff, and, and the tools that are available to them through things like ChatGPT and 
um, all of the generative AI tools that we're seeing proliferate at incredible rates will be really important to all organizations from a defensive moat building perspective and from a, uh, an opportunity perspective. And the world's going to become more distributed. So, for example, for venture capitalists, you know, writing a check for $2 million to a team of 50 you know, to go out and build uh, a new business it still happen in some cases. But there's going to be many, many more teams of two that use generative AI and all these digital tools to build, build businesses really rapidly. And so smaller checks to more people that create more businesses and more, more distributed solutions. And so I think we're going to see a popping up of lots of entrepreneurial ventures that not only create more innovation, but help spread the wealth a little bit more and, and take us back to more of an ownership economy where everybody used to own a small business mm -hmm. and, um, and do it organically and through capitalism, right? So it doesn't have to be, you know, the government is going to take your taxes and your check and they're going to, you know, send it out to someone who didn't do any work, right? This classic kind of narrative that we hear out there and government plays a role for sure. But I, I think organically, we're going to see a lot of that popping up. And a lot of that's going to be with younger generations that are not only tech savvy, but very entrepreneurial, have more access to capital through things like crowdfunding and have more tools to build than ever. So it's it's going to be a, a pretty cool future, I think. Are you at all concerned about how quickly the world is transitioning? You mentioned generative AI, for example. Does that give you pause with what's happening and in the speed with which it's coming down? The road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's incredible. I think it will lead to mostly positive outcomes, but there, yeah, there is definitely a big risk of it. You know, you see this with deep fakes is a common example of people who can take your voice and your image. And then this actually happened to a friend of mine. And then they can create a deep fake and call your parents with it that says, hey, you know, it's Jim. I've been kidnapped. They're holding me ransom. Send them whatever they want. And then they get on and they say, yeah, we need $100,000 or whatever it is. And they try to extort it. I, I think we'll see a rise of that type of sort of, I don't even want to call it petty theft and, and crime because that gets really expensive and really disruptive. I think we'll also see some of the risks being using generative AI and AI for digital attacks. And there's the existential risk that everyone talks about, right? AI kind of takes over has access to the internet, can break any password, break any code, get into missile launch systems, get into financial systems and crash everything, take everybody's money. All of that is a risk. And I actually attended a conference years ago that was called Existential Risks to Humanity. And it was one of those depressing conferences I'd ever been to, but it was also fascinating. And so they looked at the possibility of and impacts of different risks to humanity and not just damages and large die-offs, but actual extinction of the human race and what could actually cause that and how do we prevent it? And so things like bioweapons and things like nuclear weapons and you know a lot of things that we sort of think of as the end of the world weren't the big likely uh, areas to focus on. What rose to the top as you know the biggest challenge is AI. Because if it could get in, it, it can understand everything. It can, not yet. It's not at this point. Right. Uh, and we need to build safeguards for it. But yeah, there's there's a big risk that it could access utility systems and energy systems and financial systems and everything else and you know weapon systems and systematically 
wipe us out. I think it's highly unlikely. I think we have time to work on it. And I think the vast majority of the impacts from AI will be positive, but we need to not ignore those risks of any of this technology, right? We could lead to a dystopian future uh, that makes 1984 look like a cakewalk. And I think the best way of getting through it is again, to build, like out innovate, out build, out communicate, out compassion, those who are trying to use these things for ill will. And if we can create an inclusive society where people don't feel like setting AI loose on each other to you know, cause problems or kill people or anything else, and you don't have the scarcity issue that a lot of that fuels a lot of crime, that's what will help us get to a world that is balanced and is uh, not as dangerous and has much lower risks of these technologies being used for ill. Well, building on that positivity, in your book, Justin, you advocate for new incentive structures where people are proactively rewarded for positive actions. I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, I, I think we see a lot of the patterns and a lot of these examples from our lives today and these sort of classic ways of doing things, they get extrapolated out. So things like um, stock ownership and ESOPs, so like employee-owned businesses, Right. When you go to a, a co-op or an employee-owned grocery store, you often get much better service <laughs> because people know that they own part of that business and they're excited to see it grow. Right. And so their incentives are aligned with the in, with the uh, interests of the business. And you know, something as simple as that, right? Where you're not just making a wage and surviving. And you know, many people who are having difficulty surviving on a base wage from a company actually resent the company that's paying them because they feel like they're disenfranchised from the growth that the company is experiencing and the wealth that the company's building. And they're just getting kind of a, a you know crumb handout. So enfranchising people, I think, is a big part of it. And that aligns our personal incentives with those of organizations and with the companies and, and groups that we're a part of. There's other, I think, opportunities where um, incentives can be aligned through rewards programs. So I, with IDO, I did a financial empowerment challenge back in the day and created something called Community Coin. Now, this was more of a concept, never really executed on it, had to pay off my student loans and, and do some work and all that. But, um, but it was an interesting concept. And this was mm -hmm. um, before blockchain really came out, but it's sort of a, a blockchain-ish concept where you have an app and a social network where people are able to share the good work that they and others are doing in their community. And as that gets verified by others in the community, you create a reward for them. And that could be some kind of points that could be exchanged for, you know, alternative currencies like airline miles or credit card points or things that can be converted into money or other forms of value. And so it's not like printing money, but it's like, Creating money at the source of value creation, which is sort of a foreign concept, right? Like today we have money that is created by an entity and then is sort of vetted through banks and investors to go to projects and organizations and people that they think have high value returns. And all that's been a little bit warped over the years as, we, as we've gotten, you know, collateralized debt and mortgage-backed securities and these things that have gone, you know, created volatility and distance from that sort of classic, more pure model, I guess. But it's really difficult for a lot of people who don't have the education or don't have the access to those that capital to, to access it. And so they become, you know, wage, 
wage workers and, and there's not a lot of chance of ownership. I think, again, with the access to information, the access to tools and all the things coming out, there's more access to that capital than ever. We can align those incentives of capital, but also human being incentives. We, we love being around each other. We love reassurance and validation sometimes from other people. So I think there's a lot of ways we can think about what an incentive is. And if you're a business, what are the incentives that you're offering your customers or your viewers or your employees, your partner ecosystems? And how can you align those incentives with positive change? Another concept from your book, Justin, that I found particularly interesting is around this notion that if companies take harmful actions, uh-huh. you favor putting the power in society's hands to reconcile those issues. Why is that? Well, I, you know, I think that government has a strong role to play and regulation is very important. And it should be that we figure out the right regulations collectively and implement them and you know steer companies in the right way. I think there's a lot of sort of disillusionment with that system at this point. And a lot of people feel that government and regulations have been captured by lobbyists and by you know corporate control in a lot of cases. And because of that frustration and because of that disillusionment, I think organically we're seeing a regulation system. If we think of you know, if we think of the society as an organism, there are different checks and balances in the body and things that regulate different chemicals and hormones and everything else within our bodies. And I think as we get more connected as people and as communities and information is shared more widely and transparently, we're organically seeing, like I mentioned earlier, that communities are able to punish companies and punish organizations that are doing the wrong thing. And they're able to reward them. I mean, you vote with your dollars, but you also vote with attention and you vote with sharing. And so it, it, it you know, is a really good sort of segue or alignment from what we just talked about. Organically, we're seeing society have more ability to operate checks and balances, have more accurate information to drive those checks and balances for companies in the space. Uh, and so I think one, that's a really important addition to the current system that we have. And two, I wouldn't say it replaces government regulation or replaces anything else, but it's a it's a more rapidly moving moving path that we can take to make change faster. And, and that's going to be really important as we move forward. As we see technologies on an exponential path, change is accelerating much faster. And it's very difficult for a slow-moving bureaucratic regulatory organization to keep up with that level of change, let alone a society and a culture, right? We're not changing as quickly as our technology is. And maybe that's okay, right? We want to bring along our our culture and our values as these things change, but we will need to adapt rapidly in order to keep up with it and steer it in the right direction. So I think with our ability to do this in a more distributed fashion, in a way that is more inclusive and more democratic, mm-hmm. and it can be more effective, that it's going to help us better regulate the changes that occur in our society over time as those changes happen more and more rapidly. Justin, you write in your book, quote, by building a thriving foundation of people and communities, we can enable society to build itself up more dynamically, ethically, and sustainably while unleashing our global creative potential to build a better future. So how do you convince the skeptics among us that this is the most effective way to drive change? (laughs) That's hard to do. 
I don't think some skeptics can be you kind of have their minds changed, right? You've got fast movers, you've got early adopters, you've got late comers, and you've got laggards and, and the whole thing. And it's okay with me that some people are skeptics and we need them to ask the questions of how might this go wrong and why might this not work? And it's important to have that within that process, but we just need to not focus on that all of the time. And so I think through communication and through looking at the data and saying, you know what, like the world actually has changed for the better across the board in many ways. I mean, we're facing real serious challenges within the environment, challenges with the economy. And this is all to me, a transition, right? We're seeing the birthing pains of a transition to a, a, I think, more sustainable and equitable economy and world. But it's difficult to make those changes, especially for companies that have a lot of sunk cost into things like, you know, oil drilling infrastructure and fossil fuels and people who've lost their jobs at coal mines, right? That's Those are serious challenges. And people build skeptical uh, mental models and approaches to new technologies that they feel disrupted. And so we have to be inclusive. And I think there's a lot of good stuff happening there with, you know, people who we're working at coal mines, getting retrained for solar panel farms and for, you know, a variety of new new work. That's great and gives them a lot of opportunity. And that's what we need to focus on is making sure we bring everyone along. You know, that will help with some of the skeptics. But I think it's more about, you know, if you've got 100% of the people and let's say 30% of them are skeptics, you might convince half of them and that's fine. Like, let's just get busy like building. Like, let's focus on... The, the better future. I don't need to convince you. I just need to, you know, out create, out innovate and out, you know, collaborate with others to get it built. And when that sustainable alternative comes, that does away with skepticism because you can see the benefit for you. And if this company that's an energy company creates something that's cleaner, isn't causing asthma in children, right? Isn't causing disease in the people that, you know, work to get those fuels out of the ground or out of the coal mine is lower cost and people see their electrical bills go down. They may maybe see some revenue because they're able to put solar panels on their house and have a you know feed-in tariff where they're able to sell their energy back to the grid. I mean, those are all kinds of you know financial and operational benefits that they get out of this new system. So you don't have to convince them. You just have to offer them something better and people naturally transition over. Right. We don't see a lot of people in, you know, horse and buggy carriages anymore because they're I love horses, <laughs> you know, and they're fun, romantic, nostalgic, you know, rides through Central Park. But there's just such better alternatives out there today. And I think that's that's the only way we really get there. So I don't worry too much about the skeptics. I actually enjoy the debates with them and think it's a lot of fun. And I try to listen and, and hear what's behind the skepticism and, you know, what are the legitimate concerns that they have that are making them skeptical. And some of it's just personality and some of it's just, you know, their life experiences and it's totally fine. But yeah, what, what's true in what they're saying and how can I incorporate that into the work that I do and help bring them along? Lastly, I'm going to put you on the spot. So what is your idea of a thriving world? In what ways will it benefit all of humanity? Yeah, I mean, it's it's for all of us to build, right? Like I'm not some grand architect of society and neither is anybody else. We need to figure out together and figure out a way of inclusively bringing everyone along. But what I attempted to do in the book was to get that conversation started 
And the framework I used was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And often, you know, psychology 101, we learn about this hierarchy of needs for ourselves and our personal lives. But how might we be able to apply that hierarchy of needs for society and the world that we live in? How might we meet all of the physiological needs of the people in our in our world and in our community? How might we need meet the community needs, which is especially in the US, it's in kind of dire straits. People are lonelier than ever. It's causing all kinds of health and mental health issues for people, right? And these needs aren't met. How might we do that? You know, meetup apps are great and building communities on digital is awesome. But how can we do this in person, especially after a pandemic where we're all so separated and isolated from each other? And then all the way up into self-esteem and, you know, what are we doing in the world that makes us excited to be alive and feel good about ourselves? And then self-actualization. What might a society look like where people are beyond worrying about how to survive, how to pay the rent, and more focused on doing what they want with their lives? And this is something that I think our ancestors have bequeathed to us, and they've done a ton of work to get us here, right? And now we have the opportunity to really move from doing what we have to do to doing what we want to do. And this is something we all sort of have the opportunity to do in our lives, right? You 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 work hard, you try to, you know, get an education, get a good job, build up to a point where you're not worried about your everyday survival. And then you get to some level of abundance and you can invest and you can, you know, take a vacation here and there and um, and spend more time with friends and family. How do we, you know, take that path as a society and get to a place where, you know, all of us are able to have more agency in our lives where we can do more of what we want and feel more of a meaningful impact in the world, which is mostly what people want, right? I think we've become, we see ourselves as being very egotistical, but when you actually test that hypothesis and see if people get more enjoyment out of receiving things or giving things to other people and seeing the happiness in others, vast majority of people and at higher rates experience more happiness from giving and from helping others. So there's all of that. There's all this sort of economic survival stuff, and there's the community stuff, and then there's the self-esteem of doing something meaningful in the world and feeling value in our lives. And then there's self-actualization, which is a big, squishy, kind of difficult one. But what might it look like if we moved beyond our trauma, right? We're always going to have trauma. There's always going to be car accidents or whatever it is, and you know, difficulties and everything else. Everyone has some form of trauma. And if we can, you know, somehow get ourselves to a point where we're able to deal with that trauma and deal with the difficulties in ways that we respond appropriately to the world around us. And we don't have these triggers that, you know, make us completely overreact and lose our control and lose our, you know, get to a level of anger and frustration that, you know, damages our ourselves and our progress and our relationships. I think that's a really good step. But it's not it's not finished there, right? Just because we move to a post-trauma society where people are able to deal with that trauma, it doesn't mean they're content or they're happy. And so then how do we get to a you know post-discontent society? You know, I think that's through a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, helping each other, spending time in community, creating really cool innovations, feeling like we're having a great impact on the world. I think it's kind of a synthesis of all of the below or above, however you look at it, below in the pyramid and feel a sense of self-determination and freedom in our lives. And that we get to build a really cool future and be excited about the present moment and the future itself. And, you know, once we get there, I think, you know, Star Trek is nothing. 
right? You know, being able to create, understand physics, understand chemistry, understand psychology and all these things to a degree where we can, we can do things that you and I can't even imagine. And I'm really excited about that. Well, Justin Bean, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. I appreciate you sharing some positivity. That's always always nice. And I wish you the best of luck with your book. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate it. And, you know, thanks everybody for listening. And I, you know, wish that you and and everybody have a a chance to play a part in, in building that and that we can be inclusive and bring everybody along. To learn more about Justin's great work or to obtain a copy of his latest book, please visit justincbean.com. That's justincbean.com. If you would like to recommend a topic or a speaker for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.